Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today I'll be talking to the author of White Identity Politics. The author is Ashley Jardina, and the publisher of the book is Cambridge University Press. The book is out just at the start of 2019. I have the pleasure to have Ashley on the phone here today. Ashley, how are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. Uh, it's a, a pleasure to have read uh, this timely, timely book. We were just talking very briefly about how timely it actually is. Uh, before we get to talking about it, would you share a little bit about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm Ashley Jardina, and I'm an assistant professor of political science at Duke University. I did my PhD at the University of Michigan, and I primarily study the nature of racial attitudes and the natures of group identity. So I'm really interested in what racial attitudes look like, where they come from, and how they influence the way people view the political and social world. There's so many things about this book um, that people need to read that is is um, uh, significant and interesting. One of the most interesting things is the title, White Identity Politics. No subtitle. White Identity Politics is, is really enough, and we don't have to get cut off with all of those long, long subtitles that we always forget. Uh, the meaning of this book is really reflected there uh, in, in the title. Um I wanted to start talking about this book with another title, which is the title of your second chapter of the book, which is uh, the title is Making the Invisible Visible. And it seemed to me this is a good place to start our conversation because uh, this is a big part of understanding the subtle argument you make and, and also the data. So what what is invisible about white identity, uh, what is it hidden behind, and and maybe to start our conversation, why is it important to make it visible? So, when I talk about identity being invisible, what I mean is sort of the idea that, for the most part, because whites are kind of the dominant group in the United States for most of U.S. history um, and presently, but potentially not into the future, whites have remained the numerical majority in the United States. And because of that, whites don't often have to think about their racial group in the way that we know that racial and ethnic minorities in the U.S. think about their racial groups. So a lot of scholars and a lot of um, pundits have talked about race being the sort of invisible or a latent factor for white people. They just don't have to think about it. So the metaphor that people often use to talk about this is that just as fish don't see water, whites don't see race. And the argument that I make in the book is that for the most part, that's often true. But I'm wondering what happens when conditions in the political and social environment start to change and whites no longer feel sort of secure at their position at the top of a racial hierarchy in the United States, their numerical majority starts to decline. Um, Other social and political factors that are happening, things like the election of Obama, major demographic changes, starting to make white people think about race in the way that they don't often think about race. And so as a result, this identity and this sort of 
attachment to their group is no longer invisible. It's now very visible. It's now something that whites often think about and turn to when they're thinking about the policies that they support, the political candidates that they like. Now, there are all sorts of complicated uh, measurement issues uh, to thinking about what is a pretty straightforward concept that you just that you just described. Um, but these measurement issues, I think, are part of why this issue has remained complicated for people to understand. Um, I wonder if you could talk maybe about you know two or three of those concepts that are uh, that are that are different and, and different in some important ways, but empirically hard to disentangle. And, and how you went about doing this in the book. Uh, and in doing so, you could talk a little bit about the data that you used. Sure. So there are a couple of things to think about when it comes to measurement and when it comes to the concept of white identity more generally. So one thing it's important to think about is the fact that when we often think about the way that race matters for whites in the United States, we're often thinking about racial prejudice. And political scientists have a number of different ways that they measure, understand what white racial prejudice looks like. The sort of predominant theory about the nature of white racial prejudice in the discipline is this idea of racial resentment. And it's this argument that was put forth by David Sears and then um, really built upon by Don Kinder and Lynn Sanders. And they argue that white's racial attitudes are mainly a function of anti-Black affect coupled with the sort of belief that Blacks don't subscribe to traditional American values. And that's kind of the way that we've thought about how race matters for whites in the United States. Now, on the flip side, when we think about the way that race matters for people of color, especially African Americans, we've thought a lot about sort of group identities and this other term that I'll explain in a minute called group consciousness. And the idea there is that the sort of sense of solidarity that people of color feel as a result of their race and their experiences with discrimination in the United States, that that feeling is what really matters for how they think about the political world. And we haven't really imported that concept to think about how whites think about race for the reasons that I just mentioned, this idea that race in that way is kind of invisible for white people. And so when I started to think about this idea, like, hey, actually, I think whites probably at certain periods of time in history and certainly um, increasingly so do start to think about the race in this way, uh, we didn't really have good measures to tap into white identity or white consciousness in the way that we have for people of color. So what do I mean when I say identity versus consciousness? Because that's an important distinction here. So I take up these two concepts in the book. And identity is really just the sort of psychological attachment to a group that you think about being white and it matters to you. And you maybe sometimes bring that to bear on your political evaluations. But consciousness is this other term. It means that you not only feel attached to your group, but you think that your group ought to work together within the political world to try to change something that you don't like about your group circumstances. For people of color, we often think that that means that they want to try to elevate their group status. They want to get policies that um, help and benefit their group, and they want to live in a more egalitarian world. So for whites, what we think that that means is instead that they want to be able to maintain their position as the dominant group. And so I couldn't just use the same types of survey questions and measures that we'd use traditionally to talk about these concepts and think about these concepts for Blacks in the United States, um, because the circumstances are a little bit different. For Blacks, it's about 
about achieving equality. And for whites, it's about maintaining power and privilege. Um, and so I did a lot of work and used a number of surveys. I think across the book, I've got over eight surveys um, over the span of about a decade looking at the development of identity and consciousness. So, so based on this and, and kind of taking the, the largest look at this, uh, what portion or, or what's the percentage of, of white people in the United States that, that identify as white in a couple of the different ways that you mentioned? And, and how does this differ by some of the factors that we might, might assume, like, like gender and age and education and other ways that one's identity might play out? So it's actually about 30 to 40% of whites in the United States who feel that their racial identity is important to them. A slightly smaller percentage of whites have this concept of group consciousness. So that's around 20 to 30% of whites. But we're still talking about a sizable percentage of the white population. One of the things I like to point out to people, too, is that these aren't white supremacists, right? Like that's a very small percentage of whites in the United States. Um, But this is, you know, a pretty big subset of white Americans who are thinking about race in this way. Now, a lot of people don't necessarily have these same types of attachments to these other identities like age, like gender. I mean, we talk sometimes about women's gender consciousness um, or uh, women's identity, and sometimes that matters politically, but we often find that it's actually not as politically consequential. And the same is true for some of these other identities um, like age. People don't they might think of themselves as a person who belongs to a particular generation, or they might think of themselves as um, somebody in their you know, 60s or something. But the difference between thinking about an identity in that way and thinking about the identity in the way that I talk about in the book is that those identities don't often matter for politics. And so that's the big takeaway here is that it's not just that people feel this attachment to their group, but that... It, that having that sense of attachment and, and having that sense of solidarity has really profound political consequences. It is, in fact, a lens through which people view the, the political world and view po- policies and view candidates. Yeah, and, and this this all matters um, if white consciousness or white identity is also re- related to beliefs and behaviors, especially those beliefs and behaviors that we might worry about, like resentment and, and racism. So what did you find about the links between white identity and these kinds of um, other things that you could measure related to racial resentment and, and racism itself? This is a really important question because the argument that I make in the book is that these two things are not one and the same. So it's certainly the case that there are a number of whites in the United States who we would call racially prejudiced. And there are a number of whites who score um, somewhere above zero on this measure of racial resentment that we have, whites that we would call more or less racially resentful. But you can identify with your racial group and feel a sense of in-group favoritism without necessarily also possessing a sense of racial resentment or having racial prejudice. Now, I don't want the takeaway from readers of the book and, and listeners of the podcast to think that, oh, well, you know, this is sort of white identity is like kind of this innocuous force then in American politics, because it's not, right? One people who identify as white and feel the sense of solidarity do so because they want to protect their group. They don't necessarily want to do it at the expense of outgroups, the expense of people of color, but oftentimes that's what the consequences are of having this identity. It, it sort of 
by necessity, if you are motivated to feel this attachment to your group because you're worried about the group status, you're worried about losing a sense of privilege, well, it's because you have the status and privilege, um, and that is at the expense of people of color. But the point is that they're not sort of these reciprocal forces. It's not the case that people who are really high in white identity are also necessarily really high on racial prejudice. Um, in fact, the point that I make in the book is that the people who score very high on both of these concepts, those are the white supremacists. Those are the people who um, are members of the alt-right, um, who are members of these bona fide white supremacist groups. Um, but it's not the case that the, that most of people who score high in this identity are also racially prejudiced. Um, I like to say that one way of thinking about it is that they're not two sides of the same coin, that they're distinct psychological phenomenon and they often have different consequences. And that's important um, to understand and to think about sort of the forces that are working in contemporary politics today. Now, as someone who studies public policy, I was especially interested in your analysis of how white identity links with attitudes towards social policy, uh, an area that, that you, you really just allude to. So how do, you know, what are the consequence of this for uh, uh, not just um, uh, beliefs, but also for, for voting and, and, and support for candidates? You compare Social Security and Medicare with Medicaid and, and welfare uh, programs um, as, as a, a couple of different examples of social policy that we might expect to, to be related to issues of identity. Um, what do you find? Do these, these findings um, fit with what your earlier findings in the book are? Or are there some complexities to consider when we try to link identity and policy preferences together? So I think this is a really fascinating component of the work. And it's a place in which we can begin to understand the differences between white identity and white prejudice. So we've known for a really long time from a number um, of scholars and people doing really important work on white attitudes towards social welfare policy in the United States, people like Marty Gillens, for example. Um, from their work, we know that Attitudes toward welfare and other means-tested policies in the United States um, are often driven by whites' racial attitudes. So whites who are more racially resentful and more racially prejudiced are far more opposed to welfare policies generally. And we can kind of trace the trajectory of these attitudes going back to like Nixon and Reagan, who helped associate these policies with people of color. Um, so they are very much tied up in the idea that um, welfare is for African-Americans. They play on stereotypes, disparaging stereotypes about African-Americans, that um, they're trying to take advantage of government assistance, that um, they are not hardworking. And so that's how elites have framed these policies in an effort to um, basically play on whites' racial animosities. And so what I find, consistent with plenty of other work out there, is that Racial prejudice among whites is deeply linked to welfare. It's deeply linked to other policies that we think about as being racialized, like affirmative action. Um, but policies like Social Security and Medicare are different. And I'm not the first person to make this argument. So Nicholas Winter talks extensively about this in his book. And the framework that he works with is this idea that Social Security and Medicare have been intentionally framed by elites as sort of in opposition to 
uh, means-tested welfare policies. So we think about Social Security as being a reward for hard work rather than a government handout. Um, And the same is true for the most part with respect to Medicare. And so what I find is that white identity is a really good predictor of attitudes towards Social Security. Whites who feel attached to their group, who want to protect their group, who want more for their group, really like Social Security. They also are far more supportive of Medicare. But what's interesting is that white identity isn't related to attitudes towards welfare, attitudes towards affirmative action. It's in fact, unrelated. And so what that means is that whites who feel attached to their group want more for their group, but they don't necessarily subsequently also want um, to take away these benefits that are associated with uh, other groups. Instead, those policies like welfare are highly associated with racial prejudice and racial resentment. Now, towards the end of the book, uh, you you fold this into uh, our, our most uh, recent phenomena of, of Donald Trump. And and you you explore the relationship of these what may have been latent factors in the past that have been transformed in some ways. What if you could talk a little bit about the relationship of 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 your findings and and how connected they are to uh, the Trump uh, campaign and also the the early Trump presidency? Yes. So Trump was in many ways, as many political scientists have been talking about for some time now, a really unique political candidate, especially um, running as a Republican. And so one of the other policies that I talk about being deeply linked to white identity is immigration opinion. And that's not terribly surprising. Immigration in the United States for most of the history of the country has been tied up with attitudes about whiteness and the sense that the United States needs to sort of be preserved as a, a white nation. Um, that's an argument that many people have made in opposition to immigration, not just in the contemporary period, but if we really go back and look at across history at any point in time in which the United States has experienced large waves of immigration. So we've got this immigration issue tied up with white identity. We have policies like Social Security and Medicare tied up with white identity. Another thing that I talk about in the book is the link between white identity and opposition to free trade and opposition to outsourcing, sort of the idea that if whites are concerned about protecting their group domestically, they might also be concerned about protecting their group in the nation globally. So they tend to be less supportive of free trade policies and more opposed to outsourcing. And so when you think about the landscape of policies that are really linked to white identity, and you think about the campaign that Trump ran, well, it's almost as if he knew exactly which set of policies to tap into and to target. One thing that I like to point out is that when Trump began his campaign um, and initially launched his website in August of 2015, the only issue on his site at the time was immigration reform. And so he really doubled down on that throughout the campaign and continues to do so. And that's because he uniquely appealed to whites who have this sense of identity. Um, He picked the sort of exact set of policies that they were going to care about. And what I think is important to think about is that most of the Republican candidates, um, both running in 2016 and traditionally, were they, they adopted the traditional GOP platform of smaller government, of privatizing Social Security, um, of cutting back on Medicare benefits. And then Trump didn't do that. He advocated for protecting and expanding Social Security. And I think that part made him distinct. That 
plus his focus on immigration and his focus on trade policies. And so one of the things I find is that white identity wasn't a good predictor of support for any of the other political candidates running in 2016, um, including the other Republican frontrunners, but it was uniquely related to support for Donald Trump and continues to be related to support for Trump. Yeah, so interesting. So many things in this book uh, that speak to our current moment in in so many ways. Um, And I wanted to end our conversation asking kind of the, actually a question that I I always try to avoid asking, which is kind of a meta question about what is it like to, to write a book called White Identity Politics in the in 2018 published in 2019 um what is what is that like to be working on a project that you know is coming out as this very topic is being discussed to a much greater extent than it has before um have you thought at all i mean the book is just about out so have you thought at all about that part of of publishing in this environment it's it makes me feel like the work that i'm doing is really important. And so I, I feel that, you know, that's, it's, it's important what we do as political scientists. And so it's exciting to feel like I'm doing something that is, you know, sort of exceptionally relevant and speaks to the current political moment. The one thing that I think is important to think about is that I started this project long before Donald Trump ever entered the national political stage. So I wrote my dissertation on white identity. I finished that in 2014. And so I didn't expect the world to sort of look the way that it does um, in, in 2016 and moving into 2019. And so in some ways that was just um, coincidence, but I, I think that the work that I do and a lot of the work that um, a lot of political scientists and social scientists do on, around race is some of the most important work that's um, being done in the social sciences. And I think that not only what I'm doing, but what other people are doing around race and trying to understand racial attitudes and racial conflict is deeply valuable and deeply important. And I think that we are experiencing many you know, difficult and challenging moments in our history right now when it comes to race. And, and so I'm grateful that this work is getting more attention and that we're starting to think about these issues more deeply because they really matter for um, the sort of political and social world that we're in today. And so I, I, I mainly I feel uh, both grateful, somewhat anxious and um you know, happy to be able to to say something that I think is especially important right now. Yeah, well, you say it in, in so many interesting ways, um, such an um, deeply, deeply researched uh, and interesting and timely book. And the title is White Identity Politics. Uh, the book is published by Cambridge University Press. And the author who you've been hearing from is Ashley Jardine. Ashley, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much. 